Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Institute for Government. My name's Hannah White, and I'm director of the Institute. And I'm delighted that we're here to host the launch for Inside the Political Mind, the new book by Greg Power. Greg has been involved in political and parliamentary reform since the mid-1990s. He was previously a special advisor to British ministers Robin Cook and Peter Hayne, and has worked on strategies for parliamentary reform, constitutional change, and the wider democratic agenda. After leaving government, he co-founded GPG, Global Partners Governance, in 2005 to deliver projects in these areas of reform and has since worked extensively with governments, international organisations and donors across the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, Central and Eastern Europe and Latin America. His book is based on his work with hundreds of uh, politicians around the world and looks at how social norms, public expectations and the personal interests of MPs influence the path of political development. Combining insights from behavioural economics, change management and comparative politics, um, the book argues for a different approach to political reform. One concerned less with institutional design, controversial thing to say at the IFG, and more with the existing logic of human behaviour. And I'm really delighted that in order to discuss this fascinating topic and how the UK compares with some of the countries that Greg has worked in, we are joined by a fantastic panel. Uh, right Honourable Alistair Burt, former Minister at the Foreign Office and uh, DFID, as it then was, in the Department of Health, and former Conservative MP for Bury North and later North East Bedfordshire. My colleague, Tim Durrant, who leads our work on ministers, um, including our Ministers Reflect archive, which if you're here tonight, I can guarantee you will really like. It's an archive of exit interviews um, with ministers stepping down, uh, which captures their reflections on the role. And there's over 150 interviews on there now across all parties, including devolved institutions. Um, and it's a really fascinating read. Tim leads that, and he's also a former civil servant, so he's seen uh, the, and worked with ministers uh, from inside government. Um, uh, and Meg Russell, uh, who is director of the UCL's Constitution Unit, professor of British and Comparative Politics, and uh, between 2001 and 2003 was an advisor to Robin Cook in his role as leader of the House of Commons, working with Greg. Um, and her latest book, uh, of course, is the, of many, is the uh, parliamentary battle over Brexit. So we're going to talk uh, about Greg's book and what his diagnosis means for governments around the world and also in, in the UK. We will be live tweeting uh, from our IFG events uh, hashtag, uh, no, handle, that's the one. Uh, not tweeting it either. We are Xing or whatever it is that you do. Um, and we will be using the hashtag uh, IFG Political Mind. Uh, so do tweet along and use that if you are tweeting and we'll have plenty of time for questions. So whether you're here in the room or joining us online, welcome everyone. Um, please do start sending in your questions via Slido and we'll come uh, to that. There should be a panel on the screen if you're watching this live online. So after all that throat clearing, <laughs> uh, I'm going to start with you, Greg, and just ask you to, to give us a, a flavour of, of your argument in the book. You look at the reality, as you see it, of how politicians approach their work. Why did you want to write this book? Um, and why do you think we, that we've been getting it wrong in the way we think about it thus far? Well, um, firstly, thank you to Hannah for, for uh, agreeing to do the launch here. Um, a lot of the answer to that actually revolves around this building. Um, because it was here um, 21 years ago that Meg and I watched Robin Cook walk out 
to tender his resignation from government over the invasion of Iraq uh, when Meg and I were special advisors for, uh, for Robin, because this was the office of the leader of the House of Commons at that time. Um, at the same time, it's a shame that David Halpern has not been able to make it. I'm, I think you've all seen the email. He's had a, a day like something from Mission Impossible, it seems, in trying to get here. He might turn up at some point. But whilst I was a special advisor, after Robin resigned, Meg went to a sensible career, back to academia. I carried on working for, for Peter Hayne, who was leader of the Commons at the time. Um, and whilst I was doing that, I was working with David Halpern, who was at that stage working in the strategy unit, the Prime Minister's strategy unit. And then subsequently saw him here in his building again a few years later as he was designing the Institute for Government in its first iteration. Um, and then subsequently, uh, having set up uh, Global Partners in 2005 with my friend Andrew, who's in the audience, um, we also have worked with Alistair, um, initially in his stint as Foreign Office Minister between 2010 and 2013. Um, and then also subsequently, he went and then came back, as you probably all know. And I think Alistair is best summed up by one of the civil servants, one of the diplomats I spoke to at the time about Alistair coming back into government. And he said, well, the thing is, it's really nice to have a minister who knows what he's doing. And he's actually nice to people as well, which is probably the best summary of working with Alistair that I could, I could come up with. The, the, the book itself, so that's by way of thanks. The book itself started as a thought process when I was working for Robin. Meg and I had been taken on as special advisors to try and help reform the commons and the lords. And I'd been, spent the time before that, sort of working in the think tank world, thinking about writing about reform. What struck me when I came into government was what looks very obvious and straightforward and sensible from the outside takes on a whole new level of complexity once you are inside government. And in particular, I was confounded by all of these MPs who didn't want to support these sensible reforms that we'd come to them with. Now that, that process, we, we spent you know, four years, or Meg two years, me four years, working with politicians, trying to understand what it was about these reforms that appealed to them or didn't, and had some success with some of that. We had some wins, we had some failures. But what, the thing which struck me most is what looks sort of odd, idiosyncratic, doesn't seem to make sense from the outside. All, there's always a logic to what politicians are doing. You just have to understand what that logic is. You need to be looking at these problems through the eyes of the politicians themselves and aligning the changes to the institution with what matters to them. Now, that has been re reinforced in spades since 2005, since we've been working internationally. In places like Iraq, Malawi and Albania, the, the scale of the problems, the nature of the problems are qu qualitatively different from anything here, but the same patterns emerge. The challenges that MPs face will determine their approach to reform, whether they're going to support it or not. And the frustration, the book is also born out of a bit of frustration with the way that a lot of international development work is done, because it tends to fund the creation of institutions. It's much less concerned about the people inside those institutions who ultimately have to make them work. And it doesn't really work with, often with the logic of that political behavior. And so you end up with situations like Afghanistan, where actually the international community was incredibly successful in establishing the constitution which they were aiming at. If you look at the structures, if you look at the constitution, the institutional designs, it was pretty much what the international community was aiming at. What they forgot to do was take the people inside those buildings with them. So the politics stayed almost exactly the same, it's just the architecture around them was changed. 
And that's the challenge. So there are, I guess, three broad themes coming out of this book, which hopefully are a prompt for conversation. The first is, is individuals over, over institutions, people over process. It's working with behaviour more than structure, which matters in most places. There's a whole series of um, themes throughout the book about why behavioural norms matter, how they're created, and how you try to shift them. And it's, as I say, it's a shame David's not here because he could have responded to some of this, and he was helpful in helping me think about it. So that's the first, first point, in individuals over institutions. The second is don't assume what politicians are doing in any country doesn't make sense. The, the experience of going from a place like the UK to Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, uh, many parts of the world, is to look at what politicians are doing and think it's strange or it doesn't make sense. They're, they're giving people gifts, buying them things, finding them jobs. There is always a logic to what they're doing, which the book tries to explain. It's not about assuming it doesn't make sense. It's working out why it does make sense to the people who are doing it. Um, and then the, the third point is... Don't just focus on political leaders when you're trying to do this sort of work. There's a, there's a, international development tends to focus on the people at the top of government, but forgets about all the MPs who ultimately have to make these institutions function. If you can find a way of tapping into what is really important to them, the things they're dealing with every single day, understand the logic of what they're doing, and align political reform with the challenges that they are facing, it opens up a whole new space for doing things differently and the possibilities of reform. Thank you very much. Alistair, can I turn to you next? How does Greg's analysis tally with your own experience, both having been an MP, but also since uh, you stepped down, having worked with lots of politicians in other countries? OK, thank you. I mean, first of all, um, thank you very much for inviting us here. And Greg, thank you very much for your uh, comments and for the hard work you put into writing the book. And it's been a pleasure to work with you uh, in recent years. Um, first things first, I wish I'd had the book in 2010. I think it would have helped me understand uh, uh, politicians in the Middle East rather better. Um, particularly one of the comments you've just made um, uh, about recognising that it's not always the people at the top who make the difference. Now, we all know that, but it, 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 it helps to have a, a greater sense of... Uh, what makes things happen, which you've put so well, and it's a very good instruction manual. For instance, throughout the Middle East, there are, there are a number of states where the government matters much less than the tribes in the community and the leadership of the tribes, and you have to understand that very well and how things happen. I also think in relation to Libya, uh, we were working there after the fall of Gaddafi, trying to build the institutions, and of course, you don't in any way want to be patronising. And, and the, the, the difficult balance you've got to have is not to be telling people how important the institutions are because it provides a degree of solidity. It prevents something like Gaddafi happening again if you have strong institutions uh, without understanding that for many of the people you're dealing with, the state has never done them any favours. And why should they be building institutions? Because what could institutions do for them? Um, and again, recognising that there is a process of development in the United Kingdom that we have been through for hundreds of years in developing uh, our government. 
You don't want to tell people it'll take you hundreds of years to do this, nor do you want to say, but now you've seen us do it, you can get there in about six months and here's the program. You've got to understand it in greater depth than that. I, I, I think the book is good in relation to looking at uh, Greg's experience in different countries and looking at members of parliament. Um, but Greg is not sparing in relation to the British Parliament either. Uh, and there are some good things in there. Uh, Greg talks about networks and how networks work. Well, of course, we see that in our own context. The governments of Boris Johnson and David Cameron were noted for those that they knew best and who worked closely with them. That's not surprising and it's not wrong. You trust the people who are closest to you. Uh, and if you work in political systems and assume that everyone is going to get their positions on merit, then you're making an error. Uh, and understanding how people think and, and how they work is, uh, is, is vital. Also, I think it's, it's a help in relation to how the constituency work is, is handled. It seems to be a universal constant, no, no matter what parliament you're in and what you're representing, Working with those who are your immediate electors, the people who put you there, is of supreme importance. And it's not just for the reasons that you, uh, that you would assume. It's not just about getting votes from people. Because sometimes you help people, uh, and most politicians in the United Kingdom have stood on the doorsteps of people who've said, thank you very much, you did X, Y, and Z, but I can't vote for you, I'm always Labour. And you, you have to experience that. Um, but it's the sense of satisfaction derived from the work. It seems to be, again, a universal constant from Malawi through to Iraq, through to the United Kingdom, that those who represent people get genuine pleasure out of being able to achieve something for people, which you can do at a constituency level, which you often can't do at parliamentary level, because everything is collective there. And even though you might like to claim credit for bringing 500 million pounds uh, to your constituency for a new rail uh, connection, it's unlikely that you did this on your own. Uh, whereas if you get someone's water reconnected in the middle of the night, uh, you probably did that. Uh, one of my favorite recollections is a poor woman whose um, who son was uh, disabled and she had a day out at Old Trafford with Manchester United and the water was off in the morning and the water board uh, had said, it'll be all right, it'll be on by the time you get home. And when she got home, there was a note saying, haven't finished the work, uh, it'll be turned back on again uh, sometime on Monday when we return, we don't work Sundays. And the woman was distraught and she phoned me on a Saturday evening, what can I do? So I phoned the water board who weren't particularly interested until I was able to say to the poor operative I was speaking to you, I happen to know your chairman and I've got your chairman's number here. And I know it's 20 past 11, but I'm going to ring your chairman now and explain why I'm ringing him, because you are not sending anyone out to give this family with a disabled child water tomorrow. And there's a long pause, and I'll see what I can do. <laughs> uh, and the next day, in all fairness, a bloke turned up at 9 o'clock in the morning outside this lady's house and said, I don't know who you know, but I've not worked on a Sunday for five years. <laughs> now, you can do that as an individual MP, and the stories are, are through the book about the satisfaction of getting something. Now, there was nothing in it. You know, one vote out of 30,000 makes precious little difference. But the sense of satisfaction about being able to deliver, I think, is a universal and a constant. So I think there are things in the book uh, that repay a good look. 
I think Greg is unsparing about places where, which could do better, like South Africa, with all the opportunities that it had and the wasted opportunities with the corruption and what's happened there. Uh, understanding in places like Iraq, where the political process is, is bitterly sectarian, but an understanding of why people think as they do and why the system works as it does. Uh, and as I say, in looking at the United Kingdom and some of the things. Uh, finally, I, I love particularly thinking about individual careers and whether careers are successful or not, explaining uh, in, in a chapter about rules, understanding the rules and understanding the meaning of the rules and what they actually deliver, making the point that uh, as a football player, you could know the rules of football from, uh, from one to 150. doesn't make you a good player. And political careers crash and burn because people know the rules, but they're not really very good players at the end of the day. And I found that was a... That was a, a, a lovely passage as well. So there's a lot in here. Did it remind me of, of reality in politics? Yes, it certainly did. And it will repay everybody's attention, no doubt about that. Phew. OK. <laughs> Meg, um, Alice has mentioned there uh, the, the comments which uh, Greg makes about the UK system. Obviously, you've worked both in Parliament and since you left have been a long time observer of Parliament um, from the, the Constitution Unit. How do, how do the insights chime with your experience? Thank you. Well, thanks for inviting me. And, and the first thing, obviously, to say is huge congratulations to Greg. I mean, I know, as he's indicated, just how long this, kind, this book has been in gestation. It's a very long time. So well done, for, well done for getting there. And I very much enjoyed reading it and many of the stories in it. Um, I speak mostly, you know, I don't do international development work, although I very much respect those who do, and I found your international examples fascinating. I work mostly in UK politics, and I've worked in it, as Hannah refers, in various guises. Obviously, I was there when Greg was doing his work with Robin Cook. I did come back uh, later on, and I think there's some residences here, as the specialist advisor to the Wright Committee, which you mention as one of the... Um, quite successful reforms of the House of Commons, relatively so. Not everything got implemented, but important things did, including the changes to the select committees. And I think, um, looking at some of the things that you say, there are resonances there in terms of some of the things that the right committee did successfully. So um, you talk about the need to recognize trade-offs, and there's a heading, um, make sure everybody gets something. Yeah. And I think the right committee was quite Irish. careful to try and achieve that, um, but the danger of that is that any package that tries to give everybody something can of course be dismantled into its component parts and not all of that got through, notwithstanding our best efforts. It was quite a battle to get some of those recommendations agreed and other ones weren't, notwithstanding the fact that it was a very senior group of individuals on a cross-party basis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It reminded me when you talked, um, you talked later in the book about the importance of if you're seeking reform to try and appeal to MPs' self-interest. I was reminded of um, a letter in the battle to get the recommendations agreed written by the Labour MP Martin Salter, who was a member of the committee. Uh, the general election was coming, and this was in the wake of the expenses crisis. And Martin Salter wrote this fairly brutal letter to all MPs, uh, which essentially said, do you really want to face your electorate at this election, having blocked the reforms that we <laughs> recommended after the, the expenses <laughs> crisis? Which I think is an example of what you say, find a way of appealing to their self-interest. Yeah, 
Um, and uh, to a degree, at least, it worked, although we're still waiting for some of those changes. Um, but I must say that one of the things that struck me most about the book, which I don't think really was your intention, um, was other things about UK politics. I mean, within the book, despite what Alistair says about uh, you know, having some criticisms, the UK is generally presented as a positive case of a well-developed parliament. Um, and the book itself puts enormous emphasis on the importance of culture and norms above structure. But of course, one of the things that we've talked about a lot in recent years is the breakdown of norms, of good behavior in politics, the breakdown of culture. Um, you mentioned Robert Axelrod's evolution of cooperation, which I remember reading when I was at college, and this idea of the shadow of the future and how people learn to work with each other because they're aware that they're going to be continuing to work with each other, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm struck that that's one of the things that referendums don't do. Referendums set up temporary campaigns which are gonna disband afterwards. Um, and I think that the Brexit referendum had quite, you know, caused quite a disjuncture in our politics. And maybe those, um, those analyses uh, from Axelrod are, are relevant there. Um, and I think that you know, both Hannah and I have written about this, how some of the culture that has become established at Westminster over many years, and Alistair knows this only too painfully, that cult the culture of um, effective scrutiny has perhaps been in decline in recent years, that Brexit caused some problems, then the pandemic caused further problems with a new group of entrants who were not socialized in parliamentary norms when parliament um, ceased to meet in the ordinary way, etc. Um, and I think there are shifting expectations, therefore, among both MPs, ministers, civil servants, and so on. And we, we are facing questions here about how to rebuild uh, some of those important norms. You've also got a section which struck me very much. Well, you, you, I think it's entitled The Tragedy of Turnover mm. in Parliament. Now, we've seen increasing levels of turnover in recent elections, and we're about to see it. You know, the expenses crisis caused it. Um, Brexit caused it. And now we're going to see another large turnover election. You're losing institutional memory. And the risk is that the thing that you refer to as the art of politics uh, breaks down, fewer and fewer uh, experienced politicians. We've also got less established, less um, experienced leaders. Striking that both Starmer and Sunak entered Parliament in 2015. One of them became leader after five years, the other after seven years. Um, so you talk a lot about the importance of institutionalization of parliaments. Um, but I'm struck to wonder whether we aren't deinstitutionalizing in this country to an extent, and whether that isn't something that we ought to worry about. Uh, on page 170, you say, for parliamentary institutions to matter, politicians have to believe they are worth fighting for, which is a really important um, observation. In my book, um, I cite the anti-parliamentary rhetoric that we saw over the Brexit years, coming from May, coming from Johnson, coming from external commentators as well, and the views of the public on that. We've seen the allegations of a kangaroo court uh, by Boris Johnson and his allies with regard to the Privileges Committee. So returning to Martin Salter, um, I think maybe we need to work to convince MPs that their reputation stands and falls by the reputation of their institution. And I think maybe we're losing sight of that a bit. 
you, you talk at the end about brand loyalty and how you can draw comparisons with brand loyalty. And I think maybe we need to work a bit on the brand loyalty to Parliament. And maybe this next big turnover election offers us an opportunity to think about how to do that. But thank you very much for the book and all the insights. Thanks very much, Megan. Just by the by of your point about turnover, somebody, I asked somebody yesterday to work out for me how many MPs currently in Parliament uh, had joined since, of, since the referendum um, and so had experienced what I, I mm. think Meg would probably agree, generally think of as a pretty anomalous mm. period in terms of certainly legislative scrutiny. And the answer is 220 MPs. So a third, more than a third of the House essentially have no real experience of how legislative scrutiny and so on happened before, before the referendum, which I think is quite significant in terms of that, that point around um, what, what the norms are understood to be and whether we can get back to mm. an understanding mm. of, of that. Mm. Tim, thank you so much for stepping in and David Halpin's <laughs> um, absence. Um, a very excellent uh, alternative panellist, <laughs> everyone will agree. Um, what stood out to you uh, from, from what Greg has said, um, particularly from your uh, experience of working with, with ministers here at the Institute? So, like Meg, I'm mainly going to talk about kind of comparisons with the UK, and I think uh, I completely agree with everything that, that uh, Meg and Alistair have talked about, but two other things I would add. One is, um, I guess, kind of you, the starting point for this book, Greg, as you say, is kind of people outside politics not understanding how it is that politicians think and how they go about their job. And I think, actually, a large part of the sort of government machine in the UK is also guilty of that lack of understanding. So a lot of the work we do here at the Institute is about helping civil servants understand what it is that their ministers want and why their ministers are coming to them with a particular request or a particular point of view. And it's because, you know, we have an impartial civil service in the UK. They are not supposed to be party political. They're supposed to serve whichever government is elected. But that sometimes means that they are not thinking about what, what are the political drivers uh, of my minister. So to take Alistair's example of you know, helping the constituent with their water problem, from a, from a civil servant's point of view, you know, they'll be thinking about, well, the kind of architecture of the water market and uh, sort of consumer regulation and that kind of thing, rather than the drivers of an individual person in need on a, late on a Saturday night. And I think um, there's a quote uh, from, from Rory Stewart in the book about saying he didn't know anything about politics until he became a politician. Um, and I think there's a lot, as I say, a lot of people in, inside the government machine who don't really understand politics and are just sort of struggling to work out what the political drivers of the ministers making decisions mean for the work of government. And that's one of the things we want the, the IFG to do is to help, help their civil servants understand that politics better. Um, and then the second thing that stood out to me, which I think sort of goes to, again to what both uh, Alistair and Meg have said, but is, is this kind of the brushing up of the informal against the formal. And I think it's interesting, um, a lot of the cases you talk about, Greg, you know, they are constituency-based representation systems where people have uh, a group of people that they are representing to the kind of national parliament, to the national government. And... Uh, I, there are many strengths in, in that system, but it does often come down to those personal relationships, those personal stories, which the machine is not always equipped to deal with. So, for example, I think a lot of the issues that we've seen recently about transparency and, uh, you know, during the pandemic, there were concerns about procurement um, because a minister knew someone who could d deliver some PPE quite quickly. That minister was trying to be helpful. They knew someone who could sort something out. They wanted to... 
um, kicked the machine into action, but the machine needs to move slowly, there is sort of paperwork that needs to be gone through, there's a bureaucracy, all of which is there for a reason. And I think it's, it's a bit of a sort of clash of cultures there, which leads to accusations of cronyism or whatever it might be, that don't necessarily have any bearing on what the, what the individual minister was trying to do, but it's this kind of, as I say, these two different worlds coming together. And so I think, you know, your fundamental diagnosis, Greg, that people don't understand the political mind, I think applies to so many people whose job it is to interact with politicians, whether that's civil servants, whether that's journalists, whether that's us. And, and that's why I think this book is, is really valuable. I think it's a really good point. I want to ask Meg what she thinks people like us, people like the Constitution Unit, should take from the book um, in terms of thinking about how we try to influence institutions for the better. Mm. Well, I think there are some things that we, we do, I mean, just to pat ourselves on the back a little bit, our, our two organisations do do well, actually, which is that, you know, we, you and I both seek to influence Parliament and improve Parliament. You and I both worked in Parliament very close up to all of these um, uh, sort of dynamics, which helps, and clearly other people at the Institute did as well. I mean, I would say the same about Ruth Fox, who runs the Hansard Society, who's been there and done that and tries to influence from the outside. So that gives us a bit of a head start, which I think is good. And one, one of the things which I've always thought, I mean, I think you, you would agree with this. You've maybe even slightly alluded to it I mean, in saying how you went in and what you learnt. I learnt a huge amount from working. I'd worked in Parliament before. When I got into, I worked in Parliament for four years, and then I worked in government for the Leader of the House. So I learned about government as well as seeing Parliament from another, another angle. And I just thought that was such a valuable experience. It gave me so many ideas to take out afterwards into the research world yeah. to work up in the way that you have worked up with this book. You know, I've published reports on things. The, the, the work that influenced the Right Committee that I produced was in itself influenced by the time that I had spent working in Parliament for Robin Cook. And yet we don't have a terribly good culture of that kind of interchange in this country. And I'm struck that I've always felt that more of that would be healthy because I think it was very helpful for me. And, and I think probably it would be helpful in the countries that you're talking about as well, that some of these people who are working in international development actually do, I don't know, secondments or something to be up close to politicians to really get a sense, as you have done, of what it's like day to day mm. in their lives. But the other thing I'm struck by is you emphasize this towards the end, the importance of working with politicians in trying to achieve reform. And I was really struck by the guy um, uh, called Alu Oringo in Kenya, who, who you talk about. Um, and he just sounded like the Kenyan Robin Cook. <laughs> I mean, he'd been an MP for 33 years. Um, he'd been the chair of the party. He'd been a minister. He was so rooted in all of these structures and cultures, and he clearly had respect, and he then pushed reform. And then later on, I worked with Tony Wright, um, who by 2010 had been an MP for 27 years, I think, 20, 28 years. And so we need to find those people to partner with as well. And at the moment, I'm afraid, I don't really know who those people are. Mm. You know, who is the Alu Oringo of the UK Parliament today, or the Robin Cook? who's gonna to help to push forward the next phase of reform. The turnover, et cetera, works against that, which is you know, very regrettable. Answers on a postcard. <laughs> um, Greg, I'm sure there are lots of points you might want to pick up there. One I'm particularly interested in is 
the, the point that Tim raises about the electoral system within which politicians are working. Obviously, first past the post, as Alistair's discussed, sets up certain dynamics and incentives. But have you reflected particularly on, on, on how... There's a question that's coming online, for example, about um, how what you say is relevant to supranational um, uh, bodies, such as the EU, which obviously operate on d different models, different electoral models. How applicable is what you um, argue to, to those different contexts? <clears throat> Firstly, thank you. Um, I'd not realised the book was so good. <laughs> what everybody had said. Um, that was like being in front of a firing squad. I didn't know what anybody was going to say. And I was most scared of Meg, who I've known for longest, because I knew she was going to be forensic on this. Um, there's lots of stuff I could pick up on, so you might have to interrupt me and stop me from talking. But... There were lots of questions coming in. So... Okay. I'll try and keep it short. Um, on that question about the electoral system, yes, to a degree. Um, if you've got... A constituency-based electoral system, obviously you've got a, you know, it encourages politicians to do things for their voters. And that's where you get a lot of the clientelism to vote by. But there is a risk of always looking at the process rather than the people and the norms of behaviour. Now the biggest difference between here and most of the places in which we work, and this cuts across list systems and constituency-based systems, is that once you get outside of Europe and North America, most of the places in which we work, you are dealing with a highly informal political culture, trying to operate within formal institutions. And it's the norms of the voters, the expectations, the cultural mores, the traditions, which really shape what politicians do. And in, in, you know, most of the places in which we work have had you know, a dozen or less electoral cycles. Now, if you're that new to electoral democracy, you're going to be leaning very heavily on the traditions that were there before these new institutions arrived, which were often about the local leader providing for and protecting the people inside their area. Those things carry on, and the voters expect politicians to be doing that sort of work. The problem, as I point out in the book, is that there's sort of a, a cycle to this. It's sort of self-reinforcing because... In order, where the state is not working effectively, politicians have to work informally. They have to compensate for the weakness of the state because their voters need things. Uh, the, you know, there's a Tanzanian MP who I quote in here who says, look, I know if I don't give some people money today, they're not going to eat. So what else do I do? There, there's nothing else I can do. I know it's not going to solve the problem, but what else can I do? And a lot of politicians are stuck in that position, partly because the norms are, it's the job of the politician to provide for and to give things to people. They are compensating for the weaknesses of the state because the state can't do that. But then you get this logic where voters want politicians who can get around the formal system and politicians compete on their ability to get around the system by showing their wealth, by showing their, in the Arabic term, wasta. They've got connections, they can get things done. You want to see, you want your politician to show they've got some heft. All of that means the state doesn't get any stronger. You, you get a competition between who can get around the state best. And that's the, that's the challenge we're facing in a lot of different places. And there's another risk to that. Uh, and that is, if the state can't provide assistance to people in need, somebody else will come along and do so. Uh, it might yeah. be the local leader, or it might be a group that has different intentions yeah. and secures its position amongst the people by operating a social system 
uh, which then turns into other expectations, yeah. uh, armed insurrection and the like. And many terror groups secure their position amongst the people, not by their ideology and not by taking up arms, but by delivering in a way in which the state can't. So this comes back to, I think, a fundamental question. How do you turn the self-interest, which is the logic with which uh, a member of parliament works, because that self-interest need not be contrary to the public interest, no. but how do you turn it into the public interest and create an institution which at some stage might take away their individual role in it or might, might um, uh, lessen their individual role because you're building up the state. And I think this is where it just takes time. Mm. I think one of the, the problems we all have is shortness of lifespan, shortness of political lifespan. You've only got so long to do things. Uh, and a government putting together a development programme has only got so many years to implement it in a particular country. You want to build up the institution. Institution building is key. But your time scale compared, as mm. you rightly indicate, the length of time with which social norms have been built up in a state which is a fragile and young democracy can't compete on that time scale. Yeah. So we've got to build it up longer, which is why by the time you reach my stage as a parliamentarian or a former parliamentarian, you're really looking to see what parties can do together because one party is not going to be able to deliver. I was really taken with the recent overseas development white paper uh, when I went to the launch of that because Andrew Mitchell made a point of saying it was election proof because he talked it through with Lisa Nandy. Uh, the Conservative government, which of course, Andrew said, he believed they would win the next election, um, but should anything happen, this was a programme and a white paper that had longevity because he had built in the development ideas of those who might take their place. Personally, I think that's absolutely great. There are some issues which will be sharply delineating as far as parties are concerned. There are other things. If you look at long-term energy projects, for example, and things like that, you need uh, publicly parties to have committed to doing it together, but they're all terrified in doing so. But there was an example, and institution building is another. If you're working on institution building abroad, you need to know that your foreign policy is, is rooted in parliamentary support that is going to continue, then I think you can start to make a point to some of the politicians you're working with to say you won't lose your self-interest, you won't lose the logic with which you're working, but if you can demonstrate that what you do not only benefits you but benefits those that you're representing in strengthening the institutions and strengthening their chance of a better life, then you're onto something. Mm. Greg. A couple more points, and yes. then we'll, we'll get your questions. Well, everyone have your questions there, ready. Um, I'll, I'll deal with, well, firstly, there, there was a point that Alistair made about the, the difference between what the rules say and what the rules mean. And again, going back to the norms which shape how our politicians uh, behave. The early part of um, the book is, is, the intro to that section, is about why parliaments fight. And there's a great website called Parliamentary Fights where you can just watch footage of MPs knocking lumps out of each other. Now, the serious point about that chapter is that this happens when all you have to go on is what the rules say, but you, you don't have any agreement about what the rules actually mean. And this is, this is a challenge, especially if you're building new institutions. And the book talks about our experience in 
Libya and Egypt and Iraq, where the international community tried to create institutions from scratch. They had very you know, complex rules, and like Afghanistan, the constitution, the institutions, but they forgot about the people and what was driving them and how you agree what those rules actually mean in practice. Because Alistair says there's, there's a football analogy there. You know, if you read the rules of football, you'll know how to play the game. You'll know where to put the corner flags you know, in the corner. You'll know what offside is. It doesn't tell you how to play doesn't tell you what you need to do to be good at playing. That comes from your interaction with other players and understanding how heavy a tackle you can get away with and what's going to get you sent off. But the better analogy, I think, for understanding politics in other countries is, is traffic. Mm. Because if you go, if you go to an, any other country and try to drive, like in politics, the, the institutional structures, the, the rule, the highway code will be broadly the same. The street furniture will look very similar to what you have here. But learning how to drive is about all the assumptions that every other driver is making about how you drive in this place. And there's, I use the, the roundabout principle, which, you know, here there is an assumption that you come up to a roundabout, you stop, and you wait for, wait for a space and go in. When you get to, to Greece or to um, parts of France or Iraq, it's the opposite. Now, you don't know that unless, <laughs> unless you find out the hard way. Um, and that's, that's how politics works as well. The structures might look very different, but the assumptions inside people's minds and the way they interact with each other, the norms, the expectations are all different. And that ultimately shapes how the institution then functions much more than the, than the rules. The, only, the other point I was going to make, just Meg was saying about um, institutional turnover. Um, and yes, there has been, it's, I think the turnover here has been unusually high over the, over the last couple of um, uh, elections. But it's nothing compared with what we're dealing with in most of the places in which we're... I can see Thanasis in the audience who helped me with the, the figures on this, putting together a database of you know, electoral turnover which, if there's anybody who wants to fund this as an exercise, I think we need this database. The challenge you've got in most of the places in which we work is that the turnover is 60, 70, 80% at every election. It means that every new parliament is starting from scratch. It means that, firstly, politicians, you know, in four years, you can't learn how to do the job properly. So you're losing all of that. You, you, do, you just don't get anywhere. You don't have this shadow of the future. If you're viewing you're going to be in a an MP for one electoral cycle, it behaves how you, you know, it shapes how you behave. You'll go in with certain assumptions and behave in certain ways. If you see it as a two, three, four, five term thing, it's going to completely change your perspective on how you do the job. But at each election, you strip all that institutional memory out. Every new parliament has to start again. But also you've got this, you know, just a practical problem in most of the places in which work. No company could cope with 70% of their workforce starting on the same day. And yet this is what parliaments in the places we work with do on a regular basis. And it's not surprising these things don't work very well. That, that turnover is often overlooked as a, as a key thing which, which stops an institution going from being a thin institution to, to a thick one. Because they're not, you know, that, that point about what the rules say and what the rules mean if you've got 80% new MPs at each election, all you're going is what they're all saying. And, and parliaments are unlike any other institution, especially when they're relatively new, because there's no career path to becoming a politician. There's no job description, there's no personal specification. People are coming from very different parts of, of the country with very different political perspectives and very different assumptions about what the job is for and what the institution is for. 
If you start a new job in a school or a hospital, you can be pretty sure that the people around you have the same assumptions about what the school or the hospital is for and will have gone through similar professional training. In the places that we work, it's the opposite of that. And many of the politicians that we work with in those places will have literally been firing guns at each other until the point they were elected, sometimes afterwards they've been elected. So, and that's, it, the scale of that challenge, I think, is just really not appreciated at all. That's really interesting. I'm failing to restrain myself from making a quip about how you might think what, you know what the rules are in a parliament, but sometimes there can be different interpretations <laughs> of those rules, as we've discovered today. Um, we are going to turn to questions. Um, Lauren has a roving mic. If you would like to ask a question, please put up your hand. Please tell us who you are and where you're from, ideally. Um, and we'll take questions in groups of two or three. I also have some coming through online. So who would like to ask a question? Uh, thanks very much. Uh, John Morgan, um, international development consultant, have worked with Greg, so he's starting to sweat now. Um, you, I haven't read the book, I haven't had the, uh, the joy that the panel has had, but um, your point one about individuals over institutions um, sounds a bit binary. Surely what we're trying to do is build institutions within which a succession of individuals will understand their roles, be able to pass on those roles to the next, state, the next group of people. And so um, building up individuals themselves can lead to significant attrition in some of the places that we've worked. If they die, the knowledge dies with them, and what we want is for the institution to succeed. So just wondered if you'd like to comment a bit more about the balance between individuals and institutional architecture, um, both within legislature and executive. Thank you. Anyone else in the room want to ask a question? Lady at the Thank you. Uh, Dina Safarini, so I work with Greg in GPG. Um, so as a young person and as we are approaching, well, we are actually entering the year of elections, 2024, there is a growing lack of trust in parliaments amongst our generation, the youth generation. And I'm just wondering in this election year, how we can build that trust again, especially in these uncertain circumstances. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Jill Rushford from Institute for Government. If the government, if a new government wanted to improve standards of behaviour uh, by parliamentarians, um, what messages does your book give them about where they should look to do that? Great. So um, I suggest, Greg, do you want to tackle the is your analysis too binary one? I'd love to hear what Alistair has to say about uh, how we build back trust and I imagine that Tim has thoughts on standards and Meg can tackle any that she likes. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> um, on, the, on the individuals over in institutions, the, the, the point that I'm making there is that it's, it's, it's the behaviour, it's the norms, it's the, it's the know-how within the institution, which is as important, if not more important, than the rules themselves. There, there is a and it's partly... The reason I emphasise it is because... As you know, most of the work internationally just focuses on the institutional structure. The way this work is funded by international development agencies focuses on the structures, the processes, the rules, and forgets about the people. 
and the point that I'm making there is not necessarily a, a binary one that it's, it's one or the other, but ultimately it is, those, it is what the rules mean that will determine how those institutions function, but it's also how you get the reform, because the, the, the point that Alistair alluded to about getting change to happen, there is an, often an assumption that if the constitution, you know, going into another country with a constitutional principle, this will override everything else. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, we were, in the book, there's reference to, to Jordan, where we um, were working on uh, some parliamentary reform and decentralization there. And we were told by the agency funding this that uh, they wanted the MPs to stop doing all this constituency work and instead focus on their proper job of legislating and holding government to account. And we sort of collectively took a deep breath and sort of said, well, that's not how politics works here, really. Um, you've got to understand that what you're suggesting is that these politicians need to stop doing everything which gets them elected and hand this over to their political rivals at the local level. But also you want them to pass you know, this legislation that you want and you're trying to take away their electoral base. And it's, it's those, sorts of, those sorts of challenges which I think need to be recognised, those, those tensions and the fact that, it, as I say, it's the, the constitutional principle is not enough to convince politicians to do something which is going to get them thrown out of Parliament. You need to be working both with the principle and the personal interest. Alistair, this question about how we rebuild trust. Um, Indeed, any of the other ones you want to answer. <laughs> I know. Um, it, it, it's easier to look at the reasons why trust has fallen and, uh, and take a view that this is not going to get any easier uh, very quickly. Um, there's the actions of politicians themselves uh, around, uh, around Europe, um, which have led people to lose faith and confidence in them. Um, it's a nature of our system. We over-promise and under-deliver. Under uh, and that's focused upon. Secondly, the circumstances facing Europe at the moment are as acute as any we have experienced in our lifetime. And thirdly, you have the deliberate disinformation. It's always been there through propaganda, but a news sheet is one thing, um, social media is quite another, and the deliberate actions of states to disrupt elections and to spread false information is a further, uh, is a further thing. All these things are constants and going to be there. They are genuinely very difficult to, to tackle. Um, I, one of the phrases in the book is, think big but act small. You need local wins which build up people's trust. It's interesting, the politicians in the UK that tend to attract trust are those that have been slightly outside the mainstream and have challenged it. People respect those who challenge things. Uh, I think that's important for individual politicians to have a platform, a personal platform, and demonstrate that they can, they can stick to it. In their local activity, they've got to go for reasonable wins. They've got to say what they're going to do and then do it. Um, but the concerted action to fight against an overwhelming tide that is deliberately designed to give people the sense there's no point in voting they're all the same. Um, that's a big social challenge. It's one, and it's a norm we didn't have 
Um, we've always had a challenge to politicians, and that's always been fair. But this widespread sense that they're all out to get you is spread by some politicians. Don't trust any party that has simple answers to anything. Um, make sure you don't vote for the people who have the loudest mouths and the, and the simplest solutions. Um, and just have to work at local level. And I suppose, above all, um, be prepared to get involved. Democracy depends on a very small number of people, people committed to local parties, people who stick leaflets through people's doors and things like that. Um, there is no reason why that number can't be expanded. You don't have to believe everything in a party's manifesto in order to work for them. Indeed, if you did, there would be no point in joining the party and wanting to see change and development. But a lot more people could take part in the physical process. When parties belong to a wider group of people, the eyeball spinners and the ideologues were in the minority. Now they're not in certain parties. <laughs> um, and that can only be conquered by more people uh, uh, becoming involved and it being a sort of social movement that's acceptable again. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of pushback that's necessary, um, but there's always, it, there's always time to start and being involved. And you can be involved more neutrally. You can talk and write about politics even if you don't belong to a party. Um, uh, so I think that's important too. But it's a, a big test year for democracy. Thanks, Alistair. Um, Tim, I'm going to ask you to tackle Jill's question about what the next government ought to do to improve standards in public life and then seamlessly swap with David Halpern, who has now uh, <laughs> arrived, while Meg is answering the question. So then I can come to David for a final question. Um, so, briefly, so, I mean, the first thing they should do is read a paper that we are publishing next week, uh, which uh, will be on our website uh, and very short and easily readable. Um, so, I think on standards in the UK, I actually think it's a really nice example of what Greg is talking about in that it's a mix of the institutional and the individual. So, there are rules, there are sort of guardrails and structures around how uh, MPs are expected to behave in Parliament and the things they are and are not um, supposed to do, and also ministers inside government. Um, but you can understand those rules. You can, sorry, you can read those rules, but if you don't understand them, if you don't understand how the game is played properly, then you will come a cropper and people will, will make mistakes. And I think a lot of it comes down to culture, it comes down to leadership, uh, it comes down to um, the sort of incentives that people are set. And I think it is fair to say that actually the standards and the kind of ethical scandals of the last few years have created quite strong incentives for the Labour Party to show that they take this stuff seriously and that they will hold themselves to higher standards than the Conservatives and to make that an electoral dividing line. So Angela Rayner uh, made a couple of speeches here in the last couple of years talking about what she uh, wants to see a Labour government doing on this stuff. She's no longer got that brief but her successors in, in that role in the uh, Shadow Cabinet are taking that forward and I think it's, it's actually, you know, going to Greg's point about um, uh, understanding um, kind of politicians' interests, actually, by allowing Partygate to happen, by supporting MPs um, uh, accused of and found guilty of lobbying, the Johnson government and a couple of, uh, you know, to a certain extent, uh, other conservative scandals have created a, a personal incentive for Labour to show that they are sort of squeaky clean which has tipped uh, how, things, how things are expected to go. Obviously, if they get into government, uh, we'll see how well they hold themselves to those standards that they're setting out. 
Thanks. Well, thank, thank you very you. much, Tim, for being standing. Meg, <laughs> anything to say on those questions before um, I come well, Let me just come in at the end of, Hello, of, of that, of Jill's question on standards, um, backing up what, some of what Tim says. This is actually, it's been a bit of an eventy day for me. I chaired an event at lunchtime um, on the thing called the UK Governance Report, uh, the group that was chaired by Dominic Grieve, and it was a platform with Dominic Grieve and Helen McNamara, who was also on the commission, talking about their report. And they make a lot of recommendations for improving standards. And some of those are changes to rules, but we actually got into an interesting conversation about the stuff we're talking about here, rules versus norms. And there are also, I think, some important recommendations in their report on norms. It's very hard to change norms. It's much easier to focus on rules, as you were emphasizing, Greg. But for example, uh, they suggest that ministers should be required to swear an oath to the ministerial code. Um, and they talk a lot about training and induction for uh, ministers, MPs, uh, and senior officials. And Hannah and I have been talking about those things too. So, I think it's a bit ironic coming from the director of the Constitution Unit, you'd think it would all be about rule changes, but actually I think thinking about how to achieve the change in norms is really fundamental on that, um, as well as the stuff that Greg is talking about. And I totally endorse all of the things that important things that Alistair just said. I mean, by talking about norms and, 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 and changing the rules, it's almost as if we're saying that politicians are bad people. But I think that one of the things, and obviously some of them are, but most of them aren't, and one of the things that comes across really strongly, I think, from Greg's book is just democracy is hard. And we need to appreciate that democracy and politics is hard. And what a lot of these politicians are doing is responding to the electoral incentives, which are obviously there in a democracy to respond to what people are saying that they want. In a way, this is a bit like Edmunds Burke's classic dilemma of the trustee versus the delegate, that if you're always doing what the people say they want, you may not be doing what's in the best interests of the nation mm. and the political system. And somehow I think that the, 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 the induction work and so on with members, particularly new members, needs to emphasize that the reputation of the system depends on them and their reputation depends on that. And we need to get back to that, I think. Thank you, Meg. Welcome, David. <laughs> Thank you for rushing here. Um, we were just killing time to you, Ted. Against, against yours. I, I apologise that you have not heard the, the, the conversation up to this point, but hopefully you've had a chance to look at the book. I have. Um, what, what do you make of Greg's analysis of what a sort of analysis of behavioural insights brings to this whole, um, to our understanding of how politicians behave? Very good. Sorry, really good to be here. I'm sorry, Ada. Quite a complicated journey to get here today, like, like 90 seconds. Um, before I can, can I just say, thank God he's finally done the book. Anyone who knows that, been on Meg made this point as well. In fact, yeah. I think we were talking about it when Peter Hayne was in office in this building um, more than 20 years ago. So that's very good development. Um, in terms of the point, there's a little bit like, for those who can remember the generation game, where you kind of get the experts make the cake, and then you're like, here, do it. You got, 30 seconds to do it. And I feel like there's a bit of that done to, to behavioral science, but it's a pretty good effort. Um, let me just draw kind of three very quick points. One is this, when I mean, you've all talked about even the remarks I just caught about the extent to which social norms, we're not aware of them, the depth to which they control our behavior. And psych is full of these things um, from uh, Garfinkel's experiments from you know, many decades ago where people were deliberately asked to breach an everyday social norm. And people get incredibly angry, even simple rules that are violated. 
Uh, and they can't tell you why. Or in dumbfounding experiments, you ask someone what to explain why they think about something in a particular way. And after a while, they just get incredibly annoyed and just say, it's obvious, but they can't tell you why. <laughs> or, or in lab experiments on paying taxes. Economists get really annoying that normal human beings don't do what they're supposed to do and that they won't cheat in a lot of lab experiments. Because the social norm has become so deep in a country like Britain, you should pay your tax that you, know, you, don't, you can't escape it. The other thing that I think comes through the book incredibly powerfully, and you reference Henrik's uh, work, is that we're kind of on our tiptoes of the kind of capacity of what humans are good at and our ability, extraordinary ability to cooperate with relative strangers. And Henrik's story tells about this incredible one and a half thousand years arc of human history that leads to sort of the weird psychology and institutions. It took a damn long time, and in many ways it looked like it was extraordinarily unlikely that that's ever occurred. But this very unusual, literally weird thing to do, to cooperate with strangers, um, not on the basis of, of clan or whatever, is really hard, and it's similarly captured in the narrow corridor type work. And the, but the other thing, which I guess for me the, the book is really powerful to do, many of you will know the kind of Wilson quote about Neolithic brains, medieval institutions, godlike science, and well, how the hell do we do that? Well, number one, the, the, the institutions gets underplayed, not in this building, of course, but also the gap between the sort of the Neolithic brain and the institutions, which is most of where everyday life, most of what our brains are doing. It's not the Tversky and Kahneman judging probability. It's trying to figure out what everybody else is doing, what their intent is, in an incredibly complicated way. And then, as Alistair was just saying, like, how do you get those relatively modest wins that get you on a pathway? And I'll just give you one lab result that illustrates it. So, one of the things that drives a lot of things in society is social trust. Do you think other people can be trusted? It also drives the performance of government. It's incredibly you know, constant over time, um, very big national differences. What can you do about it? It looks almost impossible to move. And yet, you can set up a lab experiment where people have to cooperate for a few minutes. And then you ask them, do you think other people can be trusted? Yes or no? And they respond as if they think people can be more trusted, even in a very short interaction. So can you figure out those smaller pathways as a skillful politician that work out that kind of complexity and web at all? Yeah. The last just remark I say is um, on the behavioral science point, lots of controversies, twists and turns, even the word nudge itself. But one of the areas that people tend to talk about these days is rather than nudging, boosting, right? What can you do to boost the capacity of individuals to be wiser, make better choices, et cetera? Well, why wouldn't that apply to those who have to do the most complex job of all, which is to build institutions that build institutions? and these incredibly complex sort of coalitions that you have to build. So I think it's great. I hope the Institute and others would do more work in the space to say, well, what is it we can do, rather than it, you know, how many years does it take you to figure out the best way of doing it? Can you accelerate that learning curve for individuals and institutions too? So thank you, Greg. Thanks so much, David. Greg, I'll give you a chance to come back on that. I know Alistair's got a final point he wants to make, and maybe you should come in if you want a final point too. Um, I don't know where to go after what, everything that David has just said because it sets all sorts of hairs running. And they, they, as, as David intimated, we've known each other for some time and I've been talking about this book for some time. Um, <laughs> but each of our conversations, we, we end up talking about all sorts of different things, get to the end of the conversation after about an hour and realise we haven't actually talked about what we were planning to talk about. And that's true of almost, that's characteristic of almost every conversation that we have. There's so much stuff in relation to the behaviour, the norms and how you align the interests of politicians in order to strengthen institutions. It goes partly back, I think, to what Alistair was saying earlier. And it is what, you know, th this book sits somewhere between sort of development, politics, behavioral change, change management in the business world. But the challenge in almost all of those fields is what development 
people would call a collective action problem. How do, you, how do you get people to do something now which is in their long-term interest but where there is a cost immediately? I mean, it's, it's climate change is the, you know, the, the mother of all collective action problems. And that's the challenge faced in politics and political institutions and certainly in most of the countries that we're working. And it has to start by understanding why politicians are currently doing what they are doing, the challenges they're facing, the incentives they're under, the capacity constraints they've got, how do you help them to fix what is right in front of them in a way that also strengthens the institution so those problems are easier to solve tomorrow. And that's the essence of the book. Thank you, Greg. Alistair, final word. I wanted to make a very brief point on, uh, on induction and induction processes. This is the manual that congressmen and women in the United States get. Uh, they're elected, of course, in November, and they don't take their seats till January, as we know from the television and the history. Um, and uh, they all get taken to Harvard, uh, cross-party, for a week, um, and they get terrific uh, talks from various business leaders, from other politicians, who effectively say to them, forget your stump speeches, you're here to understand how the world works and what's really going on, and it's really first rate. But one of the things they get is a manual called Setting Course, and it deals with the sort of practical issues they're going to get when they become, uh, when they enter Congress and, and what they decide to do. And we have nothing comparative. For instance, the chapter summary, do's and don'ts, defining your role in Congress. This is just one page, but listen to how simple it is. Do, figure out the right role for you in Congress by analyzing and balancing your personal strengths and weaknesses, your mission, the needs of your district, your political circumstances. Define your role as one of the following, legislative insider, party insider, ombudsman, statesman, outsider. Determine if you want to be major in one role and minor in another. In other words, think about what you're actually going to do. And it says don't operate opportunistically without the benefit of defining a role. Members adopting too large a range of issues can work very hard but accomplish very little. We don't do nearly enough of that. So it means our MPs come. They don't like, nobody likes to tell them what to do. They've been elected by the people. They ought to know what to do. Ministers have been in the same position. And a number of the mistakes that MPs and ministers make is because we have an induction period of about three hours. Um, my agent in 1983 told me your first constituent will be on your doorstep at nine o'clock in the morning uh, when I was elected at two o'clock in the morning. She was wrong, it was 10 o'clock. Um, but the trans transition is very quick and that means Parliament has to do a job when people arrive of saying, we know you're great, we know you've been elected on your own strengths and all that, but there are things you need to know. And we could take induction even more seriously. It's much better than it was, but it still could be better. And this is an example of what can be done if ministers and members of parliament would recognize there are things they need to know in order to make themselves more effective. If you think of any organization, their greatest strength is the people who work for them. And we don't have the same attitude, and we should. I promise I didn't pay Alistair to say that, but I, it gives me a perfect opportunity to uh, say something about the IFG Academy, uh, which is the IFG's effort to address precisely this point. Um, and we do offer uh, to, to support to ministers, um, and we are thinking about what support we might offer to, to new MPs, but for precisely that reason. It's not a failing if you become a minister 
to think, actually, I might need some support in this role. I mean, it's not a thing that anyone's done before they become a minister, and it's a and when particularly I, difficult thing to do. And when I tried to do it as opposition uh, assistant chief whip, when we were in opposition, I took it to the whip's office uh, about how we might handle it better. And the, the pushback I got was, if they do all these things, they'll expect positions. And we can't have that because it doesn't work that way. And of course it doesn't work that way. You can do all sorts of things, but you may still not be the right person to go into a particular job. But the whip's office was afraid that too much knowledge might weaken their power. Well, I think we, ought to, we need to reverse it so that you shouldn't aspire to become a minister unless you've thought about it and, and prepared yourself properly. But maybe that's too aspirational. Meg, final comment from you. I know there's no time left, but I was amused by... Uh, Alistair's reference to the first constituent being on the doorstep at 10 a.m. Uh, because it reminds me that I was working in a Labour Party committee room on the night of the 1997 general election and people were gathering there after the polls had closed and the first bit of constituency work came through, this dates it, on the fax machine at about two minutes past 10 p.m. <laughs> before the result had even been announced. So yes, that's what you're up against. And I think yeah, I mean, brilliant that you've brought that and you talked about that. And yes, we need to do it. But I think Hannah and I have been talking about this for a while. Even that is slightly countercultural. You know, it's something we need to think about institutionalizing induction because that's pushing against the culture that we currently have. So doing it will be difficult, but I think it's really, really important. I think that's a good note on which to end. Thank you so much to everyone. I'm sorry we've slightly run over, but thank you to everyone for joining us in person and online. There'll be a video and sound recording uh, of the event on our website, so you can watch it back if you would like and recommend it to your friends. Uh, it'll be there very shortly. Uh, you can see more on our website about the IFG Academy. I work with ministers, uh, the Ministers Reflect interviews I mentioned at the start. Um, and indeed work with the Behavioural Insights team back from, uh, I think, as early as 2010. But I'll just ask you all to uh, join me now in thanking the panel, especially David, for rushing here so uh, quickly. Thank you.